case you're wondering, no, my wife and I are not in a fight. I sat on the other side because it's somewhat of a gymnastic effort to make it from there to here through the row around the piano, however. <laughs> so I just said I told her I'd sit on the other side. As we look at Psalm 68, I have been impressed more and more just what a wonderful psalm this is. Of course, they're all wonderful, but this is a psalm that is uh, a picture of Israel and her God uh, coming to a place of his dwelling on earth in a procession of victory, rejoicing in him, and then at the end of the psalm, calling the nations to do the same. The song of the ark that's mentioned there in verse 1, or at least alluded to, let God arise, let his enemies be scattered, let those who hate him flee before him. Remember, that's Moses Reference to Moses' uh, song for the ark or the song of the ark that was spoken as the ark moved out, as the children of Israel went forth. And based on this psalm, I think what we're seeing is a procession of the Lord from one place to another. If this is indeed the procession of the ark in David's day, then it was a procession that would have started at the house of Obed-Edom and moved its way up to Jerusalem to a resting place. Not yet a temple. Verse 29 mentions the temple. It says, because of your temple at Jerusalem, kings will bring gifts to you. I believe that's forward-looking. But this is the establishment of the ark there. And as it's moving along, there are recollections of the goodness of God, the grace of God to the people, uh, His goodness in taking them out of Egypt and bringing them into the promised land. And then uh, the victory within the promised land that is recorded in Judges. And if you look at uh, especially verses 11 down through 14, there's a recollection of that victory in the days of Deborah and Barak that uh, is one of those times in Israel's history that, of course, it's recorded in Judges. But it was a glorious victory. It gave uh, testimony to the greatness and the goodness of God. And it was one victory that was in the context of the coming of the Lord in procession into Jerusalem, something they could look back upon as a testimony to God's glory and His power. And then as He comes into the vicinity of Mount Zion or Jerusalem, there's then this uh, envy of the mountains around that would have been bigger, larger, And yet, God had not chosen those mountains for his abode. Instead, he chose Jerusalem. And then, verses 17 and 18 are a recollection 
uh, to a certain extent, of God's presence there at Sinai with all of his angels. But here it's his ascent to Jerusalem in the presence of those angels, and there's a wonderful picture of God's glory, his holiness, as he dwells among the angels and then as he distributes gifts from his victory to his own. And then we ended, the last time we looked at this psalm, we ended with a blessing. Verse 19, blessed be the Lord who daily bears our burden, the God who is our salvation, Selah. And so there's a praise that is given to God as he comes to dwell among his people. There's praise to him for what he has done, is doing, and will do for his people. So he does and certainly will bear the burden of his people. We took some time to just think about that. Uh, One translation was the King James had there that he daily loads us with benefit, and we considered that somewhat, but do believe that this is the God who truly bears the burden. He carries the weight of his people, and he saves them. And you have the word selah, a Musical notation, but at the same time, when there's a pause in music for reflection, catching a breath, surely, but also reflection on the truth. That's a wonderful truth and something to meditate on. But look at the very next verse, and we're going to continue through this psalm. God is to us a God of deliverances, and to God, or to Yahweh, the Lord... Adonai, belong escapes from death. Bless God because he bears the burdens of his people. Bless God because he delivers his people. Just think for a while about the deliverances of God's people, either individually or corporately as he delivered them. This, of course, was David's personal testimony, and you can see whether it's Psalm 18 or 2 Samuel, as David testifies to the deliverances of God, and you look at the end of 1 Samuel where there's that sort of book of deliverances as he's delivered from Saul multiple times, delivered from his enemies, delivered from Achish, delivered from the Amalekites. God delivered David personally. But beyond that personal deliverance, God, of course, delivered the nation. He delivered them from Egypt. He delivered them from Amalek. He delivered them from Moab when Balaam was going to help them. He delivered them from the Canaanites into the period of Judges. He delivered them whenever they cried out to him. He delivered them. Psalm 106, verse 43, in recounting that, it says, Many times he would deliver them. They, however, were rebellious in their counsel and so sank down in their iniquity. And sometimes that would last for a decade or two or longer. And then they would cry out to the Lord, and what would the Lord do? He would deliver them again. So yes, God is our salvation, verse 19. God is to us a God of deliverances. To God, the Lord, belong escapes from death. God is sovereign, and for his people, he rescues them time and time again. And this is not only true prior to this psalm being written, but God would still, following David's lifetime, deliver them in the days of Jehoshaphat, Hezekiah. The nation in exile was delivered from Haman and his plot. 
And this is all because of God's loving kindness and compassion. But the greatest deliverance was yet to come. And that was the deliverance that God accomplished through the Lord Jesus Christ. To Yahweh, Adonai, belong escapes from death. And just by way of personal application, has he delivered you? Have you been delivered from the danger that you are in or were in? The sin that we are born in and then the sins that we commit pose a great threat eternally to us. And the only one who can rescue us is the God who is the God of deliverances. The only way that you can be rescued is through his son Jesus who is salvation. And so trust in him. Call upon the Lord. And everyone who calls, the promise is, of course, that they will be saved. And so escape from death, what kind of death? Well, certainly physical death. We see that throughout the Word of God, but also spiritual death. And the second death, eternal separation from God. To God belongs, escapes from death. And God will also bring an end to his enemies. We not only bless God for his deliverance, for his salvation and bearing our burden, but verse 21 down through verse 23 is a description of God bringing an end to the enemies of his people. Notice that, verse 21, Surely God will shatter the head of his enemies, the hairy crown of him who goes on in his guilty deeds. The Lord said, I will bring them back from Bashan. I will bring them back from the depths of the sea, that your foot may shatter them in blood. The tongue of your dogs may have its portion from your enemies." And from this, I think we could say that God's judgment, which is always righteous, is decisive. This is a death blow when it says he will shatter the head of his enemies. His enemies are those who are opposed to him. And I want you to notice that that opposition continues in the rest of that verse. It says the hairy crown of him, speaking of his head, who goes on in his guilty deeds. So the justice here is indicated by the fact that they are worthy of his judgment because they never turn in repentance. God, of course, forgives those who turn in repentance. And praise the Lord, he does. Without that, none of us would be saved. But for those who go on, there is no way to escape the judgment of God and how foolish it is to continue in opposition to God. The proverb says, the wages of the righteous is life, but the income of the wicked is punishment. The wages of sin is death, Romans says. God gives to every man and woman according to their deeds. That's what he said to Jeremiah. I, the Lord, search the heart, I test the mind, even to give to each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. And what do you have here? You have those who are opposed to God. They are his enemies. They are going on in their wickedness, and there is no escape from this. There's no escape from God. Verse 22, I think, points that out, because when it says, the Lord said, I will bring them back from Bashan, we saw that in verse 15, a mountain of Bashan, which is a mountain that was high, many peaks. The idea is, even if someone were to climb to that height, you can't escape from God. And notice the rest of the verse, it says, I will bring them back from the depths of the sea. 
And so what we have here is sort of a figure of speech. It's showing that from both opposing poles, there's no way to escape if you go to the highest height or the lowest point. There's no place that you can go and obviously nowhere in between that you can escape from God. He said through the prophet Amos, Though they dig into Sheol, from there my hand will take them. And though they ascend to heaven, from there I will bring them down. Though they hide on the summit of Carmel, I will search them out and take them from there. And though they conceal themselves from my sight on the floor of the sea, from there I will command the serpent and it will bite them. And though they go into captivity before their enemies, from there I will command the sword that it will slay them. And I will set my eyes against them for evil and not for good. That was Amos 9. There's no escaping. God. The only refuge from God is in God. That's the only protection. Finding refuge and safety in Christ. Finding refuge and safety in His salvation. You cannot oppose Him. And so His judgment is decisive. It is also inescapable. And then thirdly, if you look at verse 23, it is vengeance. Verse 23 kind of brings out a, an image that to us is alarming. Notice he's speaking to his people that your foot may shatter them in blood. I do believe in the end you will see the victory of God and his people. But it says that your foot may shatter them in blood. The tongue of your dogs may have its portion from your enemies. God's enemies, his people's enemies. When God pours out judgment upon his enemies, it is righteous vengeance. Remember, verse 21 describes them as opposing him as enemies, going on in their guilty deeds. Verse 23 tells us to what extent they rebelled against him, to the point of death. And so it's an awful image, sort of like Psalm 58, which describes the victor as washing his feet in the blood of the wicked. But here, there's an advance. It's, look at verse 23, the tongue of your dogs. These, we have them as pets and we love them, but they're despicable, dirty animals. Scripture dogs are not presented in the same way we think of them. And so when the dogs drink up the blood of the enemies, this is someone dying a humiliating death, like Ahab, like Jezebel. And this is justice. This is not God being unjust. This is God being just. Someone has said regarding this text as well as Psalm 58 that we're not talking about an arena, but a battlefield. And the righteous are not spectators of, but participants in the struggle against the power of this dark world. Another writer said that cruel satisfaction which too many feel when they see their enemies destroyed is the result of unholy passions of hatred, anger, or impatience inducing an inordinate desire of revenge. So far as corruption is suffered to operate in this manner, there can be no right or acceptable exercise. On the other hand, when one is led by a holy zeal to sympathize with the justness of the vengeance which God may have inflicted, his joy will be as pure as behold, in beholding the retribution of the wicked as his desire for their conversion and salvation was strong and unfeigned. 
God is not prevented by His mercy from manifesting upon fit occasions the severity of the judge. When means have been tried in vain to bring the sinner to repentance, nor can such an exercise of severity be considered as impugning His clemency. And in a similar way, the righteous would anxiously desire the conversion of their enemies and evince much patience under injury with a view to reclaim them to the way of salvation. It's a wonderful thing when someone like Paul comes to Christ. But if there is an impenitent heart rejecting God, refusing to bow before Him in anger and sin, defying Him with a high hand, God is right and just to give forth His vengeance. And He will be glorified. This writer goes on to say, When willful obstinacy has at last brought round the hour of retribution, it is only natural that they should rejoice, that is, God's people rejoice, to see it inflicted as proving the interest which God feels in their personal safety. It grieves them when God at any time seems to connive at the persecution of their enemies, and how can they fail to feel satisfaction when He awards deserved punishment to the transgressor? So, in other words, there's a righteous agreement to the judgment of God, not a wicked and corrupt glorying in the goriness. I don't think that's the point. This is God's justice. You read through the book of Revelation, there's a lot of blood to be shed. And God is just. Read Isaiah 63, the one whose garments are stained in blood, having exercised God's vengeance against the nations. Revelation 19 points to Christ as well as leading that judgment. When we see the judgment of God upon our enemies, it will not be too severe. God is righteous. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right, was the question. Well, he did with Lot. He rescued Lot out of that city. But in Revelation, when the third angel pours out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of waters, and Scripture says they became blood, he says, I heard the angel of the waters saying, Righteous are you who are and who were, O Holy One, because you judge these things. For they poured out the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. They deserve it. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, O Lord God, the Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. There are times, obviously, we read through the Psalms and we question because there's such an alarming thought. We're talking about the justice of God. And in the end, of course, God will be vindicated and we will see it and we will know it with redeemed minds. From that description of God's dealing with his enemies... There's a turn to this procession, and some have suggested that in verse 24 through 27 that the procession sort of comes into view, that that becomes the focus. And look at this procession again, this procession that is going from one place to another, rejoicing in God, rejoicing in these truths about God, what God has always been and would be for His people. But verse 24 says, They have seen your procession, O God. That is, the enemies. So the enemies are seeing what I would call a victory procession. 
It says the procession of my God, my king, into the sanctuary. The singers went on, the musicians after them, in the midst of the maidens beating tambourines. Bless God in the congregations, even the Lord, you who are of the fountain of Israel. And so the enemies are looking on. The people of God are participating in this victory celebration as they accompany the ark and as they're seeing the Lord enthroned there in Jerusalem. And there's all kinds of singing, verse 25, musicians, tambourines being beaten, all sorts of praises and noise, and all of the people are with him. Look at verse 27. It says, There is Benjamin, the youngest, ruling them or leading them, the princes of Judah in their throng, the princes of Zebulun, the princes of Naphtali. There's a question as to why these tribes, why are these mentioned? I think what this points to with Benjamin and Judah and Naphtali, Zebulun, is a people united. You've got the largest tribe, Judah, the smallest tribe, Benjamin. They're also the southernmost. And so then you compare that with Zebulun and Naphtali, which are in the north, the northernmost. And they also, according to the the story there in verses 11 through 14, were the tribes that showed devotion to the Lord. And so their devotion was shown historically, but it's also shown here in this victory parade, you might say, this time of rejoicing in God, and they are there as well. So this is sort of like we read in 2 Corinthians tonight. This is God with His people. This is God being exalted. They're worshiping Him. They're praising Him. Notice verse 26, Bless God in the congregations, the Lord, you who are of the fountain of Israel. God brought them forth as a nation. He's led them as a nation. He's brought victories to them, and now they're praising Him. And they're praising Him because, of course, He was the one who accomplished all these things for them. When you look at verse 28, I have a break, and it looks like it may go with the next paragraph. There's a bit of a question here. Um, You might look at verse 28 and see in the margin that there's a question as to whether or not it is command... God, command, and then addressing God. Command your strength, O God, is the idea. If that's the way to take it, then the next phrase is synonymous. Show yourself strong, O God, who have acted on our behalf. If it's the way that it reads in our translation, the American Standard, this would be a historical look at God's commanding his strength to bring about the victory of his people. So when it says, your God has commanded your strength, it's talking about God providing what his people needed to be able to win the victory. Either way, who is the source of their victory and glory as a nation? Who is the source of the strength? Even Judah, this large tribe, found their a refuge in God. Their king David found his refuge in God. David was the one who said, the Lord is my high tower. He's my refuge. And so David was pointing to God. So it's God who is the strength of his people. And when God is with his people, what is true? What does Paul say in Romans? If God is for us, who can be against us? 
The problem is when God's people are not with him and they're rebelling against him, then what happens, as we see in the word of God, is they are defeated. But when God is with his people, there is no successful opposition. When he provides the strength, all it takes is a few hundred men against an army that you can't number, like Gideon's. And God, who displays his strength as he gives it to his people, he brings about their victory, he brings about success. Some boast in chariots, the psalmist says, some in horses, but we will boast in the name of the Lord our God. One writer said two things we ought never to forget. One is that if we've succeeded in our enterprises on the battlefield, in agriculture, in trade, in preaching God's word, in anything, it was because God commanded our strength and gave us success. God's the reason. It's his strength that he supplies. And this writer said the other is that for the future, we are dependent on divine help as if we had no experience of the divine kindness in days past. Not in our wit or wisdom, not in our experience or ability, not in great captains nor heavy battalions, not in the patronage of kings and governments, not in funds or estates, but in the Lord Jehovah is all our hope and all our salvation. Is he yours? When you go about day to day doing what you do, do you depend upon the Lord's strength? We need the Lord's strength every single day. So as you wake up to morning, and I would say even as you go to bed tonight, <laughs> praise the Lord for the strength that got you through the day and through this last week. And ask him for strength in the week ahead. Strength for what? We encounter things all the time that we need strength for. Do you need strength for temptation when it comes your way to, to be able to do battle with those desires in your heart and the devil without? Of course you do. Do you need strength to meet whatever comes your way during the course of a day? Yes, you do. So do I. May the Lord help us to put our trust in the Lord. And how great is the Lord. He is the joy and rejoicing of his people who are united around him, praising him, verses 24, down through verse 28, trusting in his strength. But verse 29, not only is he the strength and glory of his own people, but beyond the nation of Israel. There's testimony in this psalm that God's kingdom extends. It doesn't extend just to the borders of Israel. It extends to the ends of the earth, and we would say beyond the earth, because there are heavens in which there are creatures who serve God. And so kings, according to verse 29, will bring gifts or tribute to him. Verse 30 but verse 29 would be those, I believe, who are in submission to him or those who he's brought in submission already. But those who reject and oppose him, he will bring them into submission. Verse 30 is an interesting verse. Uh, it's one of the verses that uh, if you're reading through a commentary, there's suddenly a big paragraph because there's lots of challenges. Look at verse 30 when it says, Rebuke the beasts in the reeds. Rebuke the beasts in the reeds. And if you compare translations, that makes it even more interesting. The King James here has rebuked the company of spearmen. 
And so what is this talking about? I think it's accurate to translate it this way based on my study, what I've read. That this is an illusion, it's an image that points to those who are opposing God, perhaps in Egypt. Egypt is mentioned down in verse 31. But in Scripture, the beasts in the reeds may very well be the Nile crocodile. It could be a hippo, too. It just says beast. But the beasts in the reeds, if that's a crocodile, it's a reference to those powerful beasts that attack and are difficult to subdue. And yet God has the power to rebuke them. Another image that we're given here is the herd of bulls with the calves of the people. And so this is, I would suggest, powerful leaders. They're called bulls here. Along with those who follow them, the calves of the peoples. The ones who are resisting and opposing God. There are those who certainly aligned themselves under David as king, but there were others who had not yet, but God in his power and might and authority in his kingdom would bring them into subjection, including these ones that are called beasts in the reeds or the herd of bulls. The next phrase says, trampling underfoot the pieces of silver. And this is either... I think the two views, uh, main views on this, as one commentator said, would this would be God's judgment upon the covetous, or else it is those who are sort of groveling. The word trampling sends us a, a, a different direction, but if it's the idea of groveling with tribute, so God is going to deal with them to the place where they come to Him and they're actually groveling before Him as they're subjected to Him, made to submit and under his feet. As at times, you can read through David's conquering of peoples and Joshua's as well, and literally they would put their feet on the neck of their enemies as a symbol of their defeating them. The last phrase of the verse says, he has scattered the peoples who delight in war. So this is the characteristic of these peoples who are opposing God, rejecting God, they're not submitted to God, and so God has to bring them into subjection. And the God who rules at Jerusalem is such a God that he will not only rebuke them, but as he rebukes them, then there is the response of those who are coming forth with a desire for peace. Look at verse 31, it says, Envoys will come out of Egypt. Ethiopia will quickly stretch out her hands to God. This is messengers. These are messengers who are coming to, to seek for peace so that the, the, the king, the one who is so powerful that he could dominate and destroy them, they're coming in advance so that he will not do that. They're surrendering. And so this image in verse 31 points to ultimately the victory of God over all of the nations, even those that are far away from Israel. Um, I, I'm still thinking about one thing that someone said about this passage. So you have, and, and let me just give an illustration for a moment. Remember the Gibeonites? 
the Gibeonites who they took crusty bread, they dressed themselves in really old garments like they'd come from a long distance and they said, please make peace with us because they were afraid of what Israel might do to them. I think that's the idea there in verse 31 is that there are those who are seeking peace. They don't want to be dealt with in war because they know they're going to be defeated. One writer said that God's kingdom has actually begun to conquer these peoples. Now we know, based on what we see in Scripture, that Christ is coming again, that he's going to establish a kingdom on earth. But when it comes to how Christ brings about the submission of the peoples on the earth, it is not always through military might or force, right? Remember the Ethiopian eunuch? He's reading through Isaiah. Philip comes and preaches Christ to him, and he went on his way after being baptized rejoicing. Where did he go? And what message did he take? And what king was he preaching? And so there are those who, hearing the message of the gospel, willingly submit. Not just because the power and might and expected destruction. Well, certainly Christ is able to do that. But there's also the message of the kingdom, the, the, the preaching of Jesus Christ. That as it is proclaimed, there are those who humble themselves and submit. And so this writer said that the theme of this stanza is developed in Isaiah chapter 60 as it talks about the nations coming to God, but he said its initial fulfillment is now a matter of history. The conquest is spiritual rather than political in the Gentile influx into the kingdom. Now we could certainly say that there's some issues with that because we don't view that this world is ultimately submitting to Christ until Christ comes again and forces it into submission with a rod of iron, Psalm 2, and also Revelation. But there are those who are part of Christ's kingdom, who have confessed Him as Lord, who have surrendered themselves to Him and bowed before Him, and they now serve Him. And whether it's Egypt or Ethiopia or other nations around the world, praise the Lord that his kingdom is over all. And one day we will see that earthly kingdom established, that earthly kingdom where those, any who rejects his rule, that, re that reject his rule, will be brought into submission. Look at verse 32. We'll conclude here with this last stanza, which calls for the praise of God, verse 32, it's sing to God and sing praises to the Lord, Adonai. This is the God of Israel, verse 35. And who is called to worship God? It's not only those who are a part of this procession in verses 24 through 27. It's also those outside of the nation of Israel. And if you were just to start to think about the nations surrounding, you don't have to stop with the nearest ones. It's not just Moab and Edom. It's not just Assyria. 
It's not just Egypt or growing farther Cush or Ethiopia. No, it extends far into Asia and beyond. It extends to the islands. It extends to other continents. Praise Him for He is the King of all the earth. Verse 32 says, Sing to God, O kingdoms of the earth. The enthronement of God at Jerusalem is the enthronement of the God of all the earth. The Lord reigns. The fullness of the earth belongs to Him. All the nations will bow before Him. Isn't the psalm that we just looked at prior to this pointing to that as well? Look at Psalm 67. Verse 4. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you will judge the peoples with uprightness and guide the nations on the earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. So there's a call in Psalm 67, and there's a call in Psalm 68 to all the nations to sing to God and to sing to the God of Israel. In fact, the second word in verse 32, when it says sing praises, is the idea of psalming to God. Singing psalms. These historical psalms that point to the God of Israel. This is not just generically sing to God. This is the God of Israel who is being called Jacob's God. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who revealed himself in Israel's history and came, of course, Jesus came in the flesh. This is the God that they are to sing to. Sing praises to him. He is now enthroned. And so combined with the praises of his people, verses 24 through 27, they're singing his praises, but suddenly there are voices from nations around the world to sing praise to God. And he's worthy of that. He's worthy of the praise of all of the people, whether China or Russia or the European Union, or India, Japan, Saudi Arabia, those nations that are called superpowers to this day, but even to Palau and Monaco and Liechtenstein and the nations that are found in the islands around the world, every place, all people, sing and psalm to God. The God, verse 33, who rides in the heavens, he is transcendent, Notice that he rides upon the highest heavens. That's the idea of something he is currently doing. And that is his terrain, so to speak. In other words, those highest heavens is a place in which he dwells. And he always has, verse 33 says, which are from ancient times. So he's the living God who deserves the praise of the nations. He is the Lord God who rules over all of them. He is the eternal God He's the Ancient of Days, and He's the Exalted God. He rides up there in the highest heavens. When they found King Tut's tomb, they found a lot of treasures. Some of what they found in there had to do with his uh, transportation, his chariots. There was a British archaeologist named Howard Carter who when he went in, he found two large ceremonial chariots. They were decorated. One was lighter, made for what they said daily use. And as one professor, as he looked at these and compared them with other things in ancient times, he says these were the Ferraris of antiquity. 
I mean, these were, these were chariots. They boasted, he said, an elegant design and extremely sophisticated and astonishingly modern technology. He described the wheels as featuring, he said, a real tire made of a flexible wood rim which adapts to soil irregularities. He said, moreover, the six-spoke wheels are made from elastic wood which absorbed, he said, uniformly the loads transmitted by soil irregularities so that the vibrations are damped by the wheel itself like the intelligent suspensions in modern cars. He said the result is a remarkable level of softness and comfort and even at speeds of about 25 miles per hour on Egypt's irregular soil, King Tut's chariots were efficient and pleasant to ride. Does that even compare to riding on a cloud? To riding eternally in the heavens? And the ones that are holding up your chariot, your throne, chariot throne, are cherubim? It's laughable. God is transcendent. He always has been. He always will be. He rides upon the clouds. He did as he came out of Egypt. And he leads his people, and when he speaks, we heard some this morning, at least I heard some this morning, he speaks forth with his voice, a mighty voice. What does that sound like? It sounds like thunder. It sounds like waves roaring. It sounds like the tumult of many peoples. That's the voice of the Lord. So we praise him for his transcendence, for his omnipotence displayed in part in that mighty voice. We praise him for his excellence. Notice verse 34 says, ascribe strength to God. His majesty is over Israel. His strength is in the skies. This testifies to the majestic God who is leading his people in glory, in victory, in his omnipotence. He has come to his resting place. He receives the praises of his people, the praises of the nations as well. And then verse 35, the address is to God. With all of that in view, O God, verse 35, you are to be feared from your sanctuary. You are awesome. There is nothing like that. And I would say again, as I've said before, as we've looked at this psalm, look at that. Look at God in his glory, his majesty, his victory, his enthronement, his sovereignty and rule over the nations, his eternity, his transcendence. Look at all of that and bless God. Notice verse 35 goes on to say, the God of Israel himself gives strength and power to his people. So in addition to who he is, he then condescends in goodness to minister to his people, to provide strength for them, to provide his goodness to them. And so the call there in verse 35, the very end of the psalm, and it's with an exclamation point, blessed be God. Blessed be God. If we have any strength or success, one writer said, let us never forget that all is from God. It is only he that makes strong the arms of the hands of his people. Another writer said, while all unite 
in ascribing power and dominion unto him, may all experience strength communicated from him, enabling them to resist temptation and to overcome every enemy of his salvation. What God is and has. Isn't it interesting how this psalm ends? It's glorifying and lifting up God, but even in the end of this psalm, it's drawing attention to his goodness to his people. So this writer said, what God is and has, he is and has for his people's good. Yes, he's lifted up. Yes, he's glorious and majestic and sovereign, but he is near to his people. He dwells with us. Praise his name. Praise his name. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. We can never, Lord, exhaust your praises. We can never say enough good things about you. Time will fail us, and eternity, we will speak forth your praise, but it will never end, never. How great you are, God, and how good you are. And Lord, if tonight our hearts are not thrilled with who you are, rebuke us. This psalm testifies to your greatness and your goodness. Your word does, your creation does. Even with just your creation, no one will be left with any excuse as they stand before you. We know that you are God. We know that you are mighty and powerful and eternal. And to say or think otherwise is a denial of your word, it's a denial of the truth. And so we pray, Lord, that you would humble hearts. And for us who know you, we pray that we might rejoice in you. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.